flourishing is way less about what's happening in your life externally and it's a it's a posture of the soul it's participation in the life of god it's experiencing the presence of god even in the midst of suffering even in the midst of pain and and heartache Hi, I'm Mark Smeeby, and welcome to Saving My Faith. Thank you so much for taking the time to check out my podcast. I know your choices for podcast listening are multitudinous, so I don't take it for granted one second that you're listening to this one. I started this podcast so I could have some cool conversations with brilliant people about what it means to be a person of faith, and more specifically, a Christian, which is a term rife with not-so-awesome connotations these days. But I want to cut through all the clutter and hang on to the good stuff. I'd love to hear from you. If you get a chance, I'll tell you exactly how you can at the end of this conversation. My guest today is pastor and author Dominic Doan. Dominic is founder of Pursuing Faith and author of When Faith Fails and his latest, Your Longing Has a Name, Come Alive to the Story You Were Made For. It's about God's beautiful vision for your soul, how the deepest part of you can flourish, even and especially through difficult times. I met Dominic after I narrated the audiobook for Your Longing Has a Name. I absolutely loved his authentic and humble vibe mixed with a profound message of hope and had to write and tell him that. And uh, here we are today chatting. With a master's in theology from the University of Oxford, he has served as a pastor in Portland, Oregon, North Carolina, and Hawaii. Dominic has also taught English for companies in Europe, lectured in theology and history at various Christian colleges, worked as a radio DJ, and lived as a missionary in Vanuatu and Mexico. Hello, Dominic. How are you? I'm good. So glad that you're here with me today. Uh, I love your book. Your longing has a name. I'm so grateful that I was able to do the audiobook narration for that. I want. I want to hear like what's going on in your life. You got this book coming out. You're living in Colorado. Um, yeah. So I want to hear like what you're up to this day these days, and tell me a little bit about your family, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah. So married for uh, 22 years, just about coming up in October. I have a 17 year old daughter while well, she's about to be 17. Her birthday is actually later this afternoon. <laughs> We've lived in a number of different places. Um, we were in Portland, Oregon for almost a decade where I was pastoring a church. And then we were in North Carolina for a year, uh, in England for several years, in Hawaii uh, for eight years, and on the island of Maui, uh, Vienna, Austria. Uh, yeah, so a number of different places. But uh, this season has been awesome for us. We started a new nonprofit ministry called Pursuing Faith. And now just focusing on writing and speaking and doing a lot of work with nonprofits and, and churches. I do want to talk about your book, but I do want to set the stage too, that this podcast is, um, it's for people like me that uh, mm. I grew up like learning how to be a super good Christian, you know, in a very conservative evangelical bubble. And I, was, I learned how to be very self-righteous and very judgmental. And um, as I grew older and matured, mellowed, um, saw the destruction of relationships that had come out of that kind of being 
that kind of a person. Um, I want I want to change my ways. And then on top of that, just you know, like anybody, I've had so many negative church experiences, and yeah. and I don't want to say you know what you know it's all God's fault. Like I wish things were different, but it's I think it's just a lot of human. Um, Ness, mm. just kind of getting smothered all over everybody. So I don't want to throw mm. out uh, my quest for faith. And mm-hmm. so this podcast is hopefully for people like me that that uh, we're wanting to hang on to the really good stuff because I do mm-hmm. think in Christianity there is some really really awesome principles that that can revolutionize our world. So mm. I want to talk about your book because there's there's so many aspects that I connected with. Um, once again, it's called Faith. Or your, <laughs> when faith fails was your first book. Mention that there, but this book is called "Your Longing Has a Name." Come alive to the story you were made for. You cast a vision for flourishing and growth. You say that it's actually God's desire for us. Which, mm-hmm. yes, yes, amen. Um, mm-hmm. But as you say, most people don't feel like their lives are thriving at all. But right. but instead, people are tired and worn out and worn out from being so worn out for so long yeah but yeah god wants us to prosper like what what does that what does that mean yeah that's boy that's a good question i think a good place to start would be what it doesn't mean okay you know so flourishing i've noticed over the last six months or so is really starting to enter the public discourse um as a term a trend uh ted talks now and uh large companies use this kind of language um I, I was out earlier today and saw a big poster about, you know, we're born to thrive and that kind of word of like thriving, prospering, flourishing. What does it mean culturally versus what does it mean when we talk about it uh, from the world of the Bible and what Jesus meant? Right. I think culture has flattened the meaning of what it could actually mean and how it would interact with our life. So uh, you look at positive psychology, uh, which uh, is a whole field of research that kind of came into its own the last century or so. And when they first started to use this language of flourishing, they they said it hinges on five different attributes. And it's all about having favorable elements in your life. So favorable emotions, engagement, relationships, yeah. meaning, accomplishment. Uh, another well-known psychologist, he defines flourishing as the product of the pursuit of an authentic life. There's another term uh, that brings joy and happiness. How? By meeting goals, being connected with life's passions, relishing in accomplishments. So the, the modern definition of flourishing is kind of like a, you know, follow your bliss cliche, uh, what you'd see the Lululemon store or whatever you right. you kind of. But I love stuff. all that. I love all right, that. Right. Who doesn't? I, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, but but the problem with it is that it doesn't go far enough. Um, this idea of thriving, flourishing, prospering uh, is actually a beautiful idea. I think the world of the Bible gave, gave us language for that. But as secularism so often does, it rib, robs it of, of meaning and kind of cuts off the roots from, from where it came. Uh, when you look at the Bible, flourishing is way less about what's happening in your life externally. And it's a, it's a posture of the soul. Mm. It's participation in the life of God. It's experiencing the presence of God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain and, and heartache. And 
You're right. As you mentioned, you know, we look at our world right now. I see this dichotomy. I see on one hand, this language of flourishing and prospering and thriving. We all long for that. Why? Well, one reason is we're realizing that we're not. We're not thriving. We're not prospering. We're actually not doing very well culturally. I mean, uh, the last couple of years, we have seen in our culture a really dangerous in some respects when you look at the suicides on or the stats on suicide yeah. uh, but a heartbreaking analysis of the state of our culture um we we're, we're just looking at the stats over the last few months in our nation three quarters of americans say that they're overwhelmed by stress uh, 72% say they're exhausted 68% feel defeated and one that really got me was 67% say they're lonely 67% oh. and about half of americans say that they're hopeless um so something's happening uh e- even the stats on thriving um there's research done at harvard and other places and the amount of people who say their lives are thriving right now is at a huge low a low that hasn't been seen since the great depression uh people are discouraged insomnia's up uh mental health struggles across the board. And so I share that in the first part of the book because we're in this place where our souls are tired. It's a soul issue. We're we're not talking about an external prosperity issue. We're talking about something within us that's gasping for air. Um the the spiritual writer Thomas More, he said that the great malady of our modern age is what he called a loss of soul. Even the New York Times um they had an article uh just a few months ago and they said really the word that captures the ethos of this moment is languish. <laughs> It's this old yeah. Latin word which is actually connected to the idea of longing, but the New York Times they use it in the sense of like discouragement. We're just we're languishing, we're hurting. Our souls are aching. Yeah. And so what I do in this book is to say okay what are we aching for what are the longings of our soul what is it ultimately that we're crying out for and how do we pursue that because God does give us a vision of flourishing that's far more beautiful than the flat versions that culture gives how do we experience that in the midst of global unrest and wars in Ukraine and inflation and mental health struggles and relationship disasters like how do we flourish in difficult times that's the question that really drives the book forward yes and i'm so glad you're going to give us three easy points on how to answer that yeah, one yeah i'll be getting <laughs> the same letter yeah we're talking with dominic doan about his book your longing has a name and there's a few quotes i want to read here that i absolutely love one is soul weariness is often a symptom of desire mm. love that one and then you said flourishing flows from identity if you want your soul to thrive mm-hmm. first accept who you are passionately loved and relentlessly pursued by god then mm-hmm. you can step into the story of who you were made to be mm-hmm. um and then this final one um the starting point of flourishing isn't exclusion it's embrace flourishing isn't something you earn because you're driven it's something you receive because you're loved that last mm-hmm. one in particular um strikes the opposite chord of like how you were talking about like the more we achieve the more we produce uh, the more flourishing mm-hmm. we're going to feel like there's satisfaction in that obviously you know mm-hmm. but as far as true flourishing it's not going to mm-hmm. come from our accomplishments as right. much as it's going to come from realizing how loved we are 
And man, if, how can we, how can we help ourselves understand how loved we are? I mean, we always want to go, how can we let those people know how loved they are? But really like, let me, how can I know how, how much loved I am? Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I start the book in the place I do after talking about the issue, the problem, and, and that is souls that are broken and gasping for air. What's the answer? What's the solution? And as you know, we go to Second Peter and we look at the seven steps towards a flourishing life. But before we even get to any of that, I first introduce this idea of identity because we need to know who we are. Uh, we need to know what God says about us. We live in a moment where there is a crisis of identity, confusion over identity. And typically when there's conversations about flourishing in the secular spaces, uh, identity isn't really discussed as much. It's more about the outer self, what's happening in your outer world. Yeah. But you got to start deeper than that, right? It, it's in a place of your soul reconnecting and understanding who God says you are. And from God's perspective, he this is the mind-blowing thing to me. From God's perspective, when he envisioned us, which is an interesting thought, when he envisioned us before we came to be, like God had a vision of you, he had a vision of me, even before we were created, before we were a thing, his vision of us was a vision of flourishing. Uh, Psalm 139 is a good example of that. Um, and his eschatological vision for us, a fancy term that just means, the you know, in the end, uh, is flourishing, right? It's why Ephesians says we are seated with him in the heavenly realm. So it's kind of this bookend of identity where God, before we were even created, he's envisioned flourishing. He sees us someday flourishing with him. So what is the in-between space supposed to be now? Well, it's living out our identity. It's saying yes to who God already says we are and to me that's such a big game changer because we're not striving for something that's why i even use the language of gifts in this book these seven gifts that god has given us rather than these are your seven disciplines or practices and those are helpful terms but i think gift is better because it this is god saying i see you as this you are my beloved you are my son you are my daughter you are deeply loved. You are in the beloved. You are a new creation. On and on, this language of identity. And if we can begin to embrace that, oh, this is who God says I am, then that leads to a place of flourishing. It's really the foundation of mm. flourishing. I love that. I have to show you um, my tattoo on my arm. I don't know if you can read oh, that. Yeah, yeah, beloved. Yep. that's I, Dearly I to, loved. Yep. I want to remind myself every morning I wake up that uh, oh, I am the beloved. That's so cool. I love that Thank word you. because I talk about it a little bit in the book. Yeah. But um, when Jesus was baptized and the father said to him, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Um, I always used to read that through the lens of, well, of course, the father says that about yeah, Jesus. Right. Jesus was perfect, right? But what's mind-blowing is in Ephesians, Paul uses the same language, and he says, you are in the beloved. In other words, the same way the Father spoke over Jesus, you're my beloved son, and you am well placed. That's what he says over every single one of us. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased with you. I delight in you. I'm proud of you. I mean, that, that alone is just such a 
beautiful insight into the heart of God. And that's how we start to flourish with that as our foundation. I, I absolutely love that, Dominic. Uh, I'll tell you, I believed that for a long time, but then I then I figured out that I needed to somehow like make a living and build a career. And so mm. I started feeling mm. like I had to be really, really, really good for God. Um, mm-hmm. Not only kind of from a career standpoint, but also to keep seeking you know, further blessing. Like, I want to make sure that God knows that I'm really trying really hard to be a really good Christian. And I know you've done many years as a professional Christian, so I know you understand, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> some of that. Uh, yeah. But I, when the pandemic hit huh. and, and I stopped touring, I stopped doing my music concerts, I was faced with this question of who am I now? What is mm-hmm. my identity when it's not wrapped up in people clapping for me, um, mm. w- and and when I'm not on that kind of that um, that carousel of performance, like who am I? I found a really good therapist. I'm so thankful for him, and mm. and he and he really encouraged me to like um, waste some time. I need you to waste some time. I'm like, no, no, uh, that's huh. what losers do. And you know, I'm like, cause I'm prone to like, I'm going to be productive as a, f- a way of kind of proving my worth and my value. And, yeah. and I say that because I know that our society is built that way. That's kind of how our yep. society is. Like we do have to pay the rent. We do have, we do get greater success the more we prove ourselves to other people. But this God idea of belovedness just for who we are Mm. not asking us to actually even do anything is so Mm. contrarian and it's just so mind-blowing that's why i want to continually remind myself every day like god thank you for loving it's everything i mean uh it it was saint uh teresa of avila who once said that almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge and that's actually a really insightful statement. Um, it's kind of connected to what, you know, David prayed uh, in, in the Psalms, like, Lord, create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit yeah. in me. Or Augustine, he, he said something very similar. He said, Lord, let me know myself and know you. <laughs> um, and I, I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic, like you just said, is we had to face some of our demons. We had to wrestle with our shadow side. We had to ask the question of identity um, because when things are stripped away, um, when as a pastor, your church is now via Zoom for a season, uh, when you make a transition in life, uh, that can be challenging because you, you realize I've built up this facade almost of, of who I want to appear to be, but is that really who I am? Um, in, in the book, I talk about this concept that, that's just been, I'm still chewing on it. I'm still thinking it through, but I call it live without walls. What does it mean to live without walls? Because in time, and everyone learns how to do this, we there's a disconnect between our soul and our role. <laughs> um where we're one way in front of one group of people and another way in, in front of oh, another yeah. group of people. Yeah. But yeah. inwardly, we may not be living out of who God says we are or who God has actually called us to be. And part of the maturing process, the way to have a flourishing soul is to learn what are these walls, I've, the armor that I've put up, the masks that yes. I wear, what are they? Identify them. 
and then begin the, the slow, painful process of, of deconstructing them so that I can be true uh, to, to who God has called me to be. I think that was one of the painful upsides of the, the pandemic is that it forced all of us to ask some of those difficult question, questions and then come face to face with, oh, I was so busy I didn't even know that was in me. Yeah, <laughs> that, yes, that's we, me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we begin, it's like Blaise Pascal, he said, almost all the problems that humans face, I'm kind of butchering the quote, but he says, it's man's inability to stay still in a room by himself. Mm. <laughs> um, because the busier we are, we're rushing, doing things, going places, meetings, all that, and we can have an inflated sense of importance or a uh, sense of disenchantment that we haven't really engaged with or brokenness lays just beneath the surface that needs to come out and when we slow down uh, when we breathe mm. when we invite god's spirit into the quiet spaces and the dark places of our life that's when healing can begin you're listening to saving my faith I'm Mark Smeavy, and today we're talking with Dominic Doan about his new book, Your Longing Has a Name, Come Alive to the Story You Were Made For. Before we jump back into the conversation, I wanted to share a quote from this book that I really love. Dominic wrote, God has way bigger aspirations than how well you perform. He's healing this world through love, and love is never about efficiency, rules, or obligations. It's about relationship, intimacy, compassion, time. It's about slowly cultivating the flourishing of those you're with. Isn't that awesome? I hope it inspires you as much as it does me. I put more awesome quotes from Dominic on the show notes page. Be sure to check those out. Let's get back into the conversation. Always keep the person listening in mind going, okay, this sounds great. You guys are super smart and super spiritual, but like, give me something really practical. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, if I, if I was to kind of uh, dissect this down into or parse it down into a couple simple things, what, what I hear you saying is pull away. Like mm-hmm. give yourself some space to step away from some of these yeah. patterns of behavior that may be causing chaos. Maybe it means turning off a particular TV channel. Maybe it means like mm-hmm. not having a conversation with that particular friend or not engaging on social media. Um, Maybe it, maybe it means um, pulling away to a place of quiet where you can maybe pray, maybe for the first time mm. that you prayed in a long while, and, and just yeah. like ask God to come into this quiet, like in the midst of the chaos that's swirling around in your heart, and just say, God, I'd love to find out who I am outside mm. of the chaos of this life. Yeah. And yeah. at the core of that, my faith says, I want to believe that the voice then pronounces to that person, you are loved. Like, yeah. like in that, when I pull away, when I'm in my quiet moments, I want to hear God say, you are loved. And yeah. then I can start like looking for places in the world around me where I can hear that. Like, I, I want to find a church that says, you are loved. And not like, yes. you're loved, but you know, fix that up or you're loved and now get busy. You know, that's how like most, most yeah. places can be, but like you're loved, no buts, you know, yeah. finding people in your life that will speak those words of truth to you that say, I, 
you know what, I don't care how many listeners your podcast gets, or I don't care how many spins your songs get on Spotify. I, I care mm. about you and your heart uh, because mm -hmm. you are loved just the way you are. It's not about performing with me. Oh, I love that, man, because I think the church as a whole, I'm saying this, you know, having been a pastor in different places over the years, we so often fail with that. Um, and yet the way I see Jesus loving people is he intentionally pursued the marginalized, the broken, the yes. wounded, and he put them on display, right? Yes. And Lamott, uh, she talks about in one of her books, how in, in uh, ancient Japan, I believe, if a jar was broken, uh, rather than throwing the jar away, they'd, they'd actually cover the broken part with a gold leaf. Yes. And it wasn't to cover up the brokenness but rather to draw attention to the brokenness, wow. to say, look, this has a place here on our shelf. This is a thing of beauty. It's the brokenness that actually gives it beauty. Yes. You know, you know the street artist Banksy? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, yeah. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. One of the works, uh, which, which I, is so thought-provoking, is called A Girl, Girl with, Balloon. with Balloon. Yes. Yes. And a couple of years ago, he put it on auction, and it was for $1.4 million. And the moment it sold, the guy hits the gavel and the painting, which was in the room, you can actually watch videos of, of this on YouTube. The moment the gavel hit, the painting then went through a shredder. Did you hear about this? Oh yeah. It, it just started being shredded right in front of everyone and to the horror of the guy who just bought it. Yeah. Um, and so the pieces just, they, they fell to the floor. And, you know, some people say that, you know, maybe he's making some, you know, really provocative thought, you know, thoughts about the death of art and consumerism and all that. Um, but what happened, and I find so redemptive about the story is the person who bought it, they said, no, I, I want this piece. In fact, yeah. it's actually more, more valuable to me now. And now those shredded pieces are worth $25 million, <laughs> the same thing, but it's shredded. Right. And I love that because I, th I think sometimes the most breathtaking art emerges from what life has shredded to bits. Mm. And that's why Jesus chose the disciples that he chose. It's why the gospel is always resonates, not necessarily with those who have it all externally, but those who are broken inwardly. That's what he does with us. And that's what the church is called to be. The church is to be a place where we can come with our shredded bits and our pain and our languish and our hurt, and our wounds, and our doubts, and there find not condemnation, but like the ancient Japanese, there's grace, there's acceptance, there's forgiveness, there's healing, there's welcome. We all come to the same table, drink the same body, the same blood. That's through that brokenness we find our lives being patched back together. Boy, that casts an incredible vision for how I would love church to be. And I wish yeah. that we could say, oh, you just go next door to that place right there. That's where you're going to find that. <laughs> uh, it's not It's not that easy. And I think that's what mm -hmm. some of the people listening right now are going, man, I tried that. And that did not mm -hmm. work for me. Um, I would venture to say that it may, maybe doesn't happen during the 10 o'clock service on a Sunday morning, but maybe it's going to happen as you develop the relationship with some of the people that are choosing to share the same vision for what Absolutely. this life could be like. I love that. I want to like skip through the first six uh, uh, promises that you had talked about. And, uh, and the seventh one, just it just struck me so, so amazing because you talk about love 
Here's a couple of things that I love that you said about love. You said, Jesus made it staggeringly simple. The way to become a flourishing, whole, beautiful human is through receiving and practicing the gift of love. As the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote in War and Peace, love is life. Everything that I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything, everything exists only because of love. And then you said, the more inward and self-focused we are, the more our souls collapse from the weight of ungiven love. To love is to give. To flourish is to grow outward. The bigger we are in our minds, the smaller we actually become. That's why scripture repeatedly urges us to shift our focus away from self to others. Did you write that? Dominic. I didn't write the Tolstoy part. But... <laughs> no, but that, that last part, the yeah. more inward and self-focused we are, the more our souls collapse from the weight of mm. ungiven love. Come on now. That's oh. <laughs> freaking awesome. Oh, thanks, man. I That's it, isn't it? Right? It's what the Bible calls agape love. You know, it's a choice that expresses itself in, in generous action. And for me, one thing that really helped shape me and frame my understanding of this kind of love was looking again at the Old Testament and seeing how they define love. Um, I share this interesting word that I came across um, called zedeka in Hebrew, which is a combination of love and justice. It's it, it's something that we kind of miss in our English version uh, of it, but in the in the Hebrew word world, love and justice were hand in hand. They weren't seen as competing values, uh, but rather these are things that when you're close to the heart of God, you're going to want to share his heart with others. And um, something I got from Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, he he talked about in one of his books, how when Israel built their places of worship, there was this sacred piece of furniture that was inside the temple and the tabernacle called the Ark of the Covenant, or think Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. And on top of the Ark was the caporet, the mercy seat. And on either side were these angelic faces kind of staring at each other, right? These cherubim. And uh, Jonathan Sachs, he suggests that, in fact, I'll, I'll just read you his quote. He said, God speaks where two persons turn their face to one another in love, embrace, generosity, and care. We discover God's image in ourself by discerning it in another. So the presence of God, in a sense, was found between these two faces. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I, that's, that's so true. Like in moments like this of conversation and time with your your spouse or your friends or at church or a small group or whatever, man, the presence of God is found in in those spaces. And I think part of the healing process for those who doubt or deconstruct for, for those who are desiring for their souls to flourish again is to recognize God is present even there. It's like Mary, when uh, she went to the tomb on resurrection Sunday and she, she didn't even recognize Jesus. She thought he was a gardener. And he's like, Mary. And then she's like, oh, it's, it's you. Um, and how many times in life I just think, oh, he's just the gardener. Or she's just the barista. Or, you know, he's just my brother. Or whatever. People who are in our life that we engage with regularly. What if God is found in between those two faces? What if that actually is sacred ground, an opportunity uh, to, to understand who God is and to love, as he's called us to love? 
that that's pretty radical and i love it and it's easy to kind of put like put these words on it like this is how we want to be something changed in me when i started to realize like my own belovedness like that god mm. loves me just the way i am and like that, that love is kind of more incomprehensible than i could ever imagine and that god in fact made all of us in his image male and female yeah. in his image and so that means every single person has been made in God's image, and which means every single person can reveal a piece of God to me that oh, the other that. person can't. You know, like yeah. you uniquely reveal a part <laughs> of God that, that nobody else does. And so what that does, when I start looking at other people that way, that makes life like unbelievably magic because yeah. I'm, I'm looking for that God part. I'm, I maybe don't call it that, but I look, I look for that individual unique spark that each person has that to me reminds me that there is God with us, even in oh. people that we would never imagine um, us experiencing God with. And sometimes people can't hmm. even see it themselves. And yeah. if, if we can shoot love beams from our soul <laughs> to other people hmm. to help them see the spark of God in themselves, man, I, I feel like that's mm. like a great mission that we could all accept. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I love that. When you were sharing that made me think of uh, Kierkegaard. Uh, he was an interesting guy, a Danish philosopher. And he, he loved to tell stories. Um, that was kind of his biggest mode of communication parables. And in one of his parables, he, he tells the story of a King who saw a beautiful maiden and she's out working in the field. She was a peasant and he sees her. He's like, Whoa, who is she? And uh, get finds out her name. He's like, well, I've got to meet her. It's, you know, he wasn't married. He didn't have a queen. But then he realized if I came to her as the king, I wouldn't really know if the love was genuine. And so he dressed up as a peasant and went out in the fields and worked alongside of her. And there they they fell in love. He proposed. The day of the wedding came. He says, all right, be ready on such and such a time. He goes back to the palace. She still doesn't know who he is. <laughs> and he shows up with all of his soldiers and this parade. And, and then she's like, I, I had no idea you were the king, right? And he said, I wanted you to love me for the sake of loving me. And then I would know your love was true. And I, I think God comes to us as the peasant many times. He comes in the unexpected places and faces and spaces. We're rhyming, um, <laughs> and 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 it's there that I think we actually learn love. Uh, and that's just—I don't know—it's a good question I think to keep before us as we engage with our days, as we go out into the community, as we go to church or wherever, whoever we're connecting with. In what way may God come to me as the peasant today, and how can I receive love? And also give love and be love to those who are in desperate need. And I and I'm, I'll go back to what you said about love and justice. How can I assist in the flourishing of that person? Mm. I love that. I also I'm reading um, rereading the Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck, which is so amazing. Mm. And he talks about love as investing in the spiritual growth of another person. I was like, yeah. whoa, that's so beautiful. And what an assignment, you know? We tend to think of love as just kind of this mushy thing and it's a, it's a feeling-driven whatever it is. But when you say, I'm going to make my aim your flourishing, oh my yeah. goodness. 
like how how radically changed would our world be oh if, my gosh even if we just you know did that for two or three or four people you know like that's a, a beautiful vision of love and justice combined yeah and it's how jesus lived right and no one modeled a flourishing soul a flourishing humanity then jesus um i was reading recently in hebrews and it says he was anointed with the oil of joy above all his fellows mm. um in other words jesus was the happiest man alive <laughs> wherever he went he had a sparkle in his eye he spoke with grace and compassion and he'd walk through fields and talk about birds and flowers and what it revealed about the heart of the father. And there's just something that radiated from him. There was something that was winsome about him. There was a gravitas that pulled other people to him. That's what, that, that's what flourishing is. And Jesus suffered. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus went through heartache, but the source of his flourishing, the spirit that flowed through him was he made his life about the flourishing of others. That's why you have his most famous sermon was the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are. And that word blessed, markorios, in the original language, it's connected to this Old Testament word, tamim. It, it basically means flourishing. That, that's the original meaning. He's nice. pronouncing flourishing yes. over others. That's, that's what Jesus did wherever he went. And what a counterintuitive, uh, countercultural way to live. Because our culture would say, you want to flourish, get more money, get a better job you know, invest in this stock, whatever. Uh, but Jesus says, no, true flourishing is you make it your goal, your aim to pour yourself out into the life of others. Like Paul said, I'm poured out like a drink offering. We just mm. keep pouring ourselves out. We need to be refilled too. There's so much joy and found in getting our eyes off ourselves and onto others. Yes. And I, and I have to believe that the way Jesus was able to do that it was because he truly knew that he was loved yeah he knew that his whole mission was love like yeah it was rooted in his belovedness and then the mission was love so it's like love yeah. is the source and then it's yes. the medium right you know yeah. I, love that. I i love uh you talk about um uh intentional agape love and you said that yeah. it, it pursues those that you would label a samaritan you know, somebody that isn't a part of your politics, your network, your denomination or tribe. It's it's the people that grate against your nerves and irritate you. Mark, you're cutting yeah. too close to the bone here. Don't talk about this. <laughs> but the people that you'd rather avoid at the office or leave ghosted online, you know, the person that yeah. when you hear they'll be at the party gives you plenty of reasons not to go. Those mm -hmm. are the people God has called you to love. Ah, that might be too much, Dominic. I don't oh, know. Oh gosh, man, that that story of the Samaritan. Yeah, is, I know. It's so convicting because yeah. in that culture in that day to even say did you know like the word Samaritan was actually a curse word. If you were if you came from a Jewish background by using it uh it, yeah, it, it was not a word you'd commonly use unless you really wanted to insult someone. Yeah, we have plenty um, of those in our so, society today. Yeah, so yes. even the idea of a good Samaritan is an oxymoron, yeah. right? Um, it, you know, I mentioned the book, it'd be like saying there's a good terrorist who went down the street kicking puppies. Like, we, we, we wouldn't believe that. Right. Uh, but Jesus takes someone who's completely outside of the tribe 
and uses them as an example of what love looks like. And in, in a day that is so polarized, hyper-polarized uh, by politics, uh, by economics, uh, in, in a time where people have become more tribal, this is who I identify with, this right. is the politician right. I align myself with, this is the news channel, it's even gotten to that, like some people are Fox News, other people are MSNBC or whatever. It's like everyone has their tribes and we live in a digital echo chamber that just reflects and bounces back our own opinions, you know, through the algorithm of what we see online. But Jesus shows us another way where those walls are torn down and he calls us to intentionally pursue someone that we may not align with, that we don't see face to face with. And I tell you, like, to me, it would be so radical. And I think it'd be a sign of real revival if our churches reflected that because our churches today across America in so many spaces have become more tribal. Like, Oh, this is the church that votes this way. This is the yeah. church that I agree with everyone in the yeah. room. Yeah. I agree with what the pastor is saying, but I think true worship is found when we, we may not see eye to eye with someone, but we can still stand shoulder to shoulder as we worship the same God and come to the same table. It's why in Jesus group, his disciples, he, he had Simon the zealot who wanted to bring about a revolution and tear down Rome. And on the same team, he had Peter, a tax collector who worked for Rome. That's, that's just crazy, right? It'd be like saying, and there was a Proud Boys guy there and a member of Antifa. And like, what? You're bringing these two sides together and there was a lot of rough edges. He had to, you know, rub off those lives and get their souls to be what God intended them to be. But I think there's something to that, that our politic shouldn't be about what political party we identify with. Our politic is we are citizens of heaven. And that's what's needed today. Uh, churches and spaces and Christians who can reflect that, make our politic about Jesus in his kingdom. Yes. I want to end with this quote from you, if you don't mind. Here's then is our calling and the secret to a flourishing soul. Live in love. Pursue the wanderer. Embrace the fearful. Rescue the orphan. Binds up the wounds of the fallen. Call the outsider your neighbor. Show mercy to the doubter. Welcome the homeless home. Lavish grace on the sinner. Live so your love makes non-believers question their disbelief in God. Bro, freaking awesome. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, thank you for everything you do, man. So good to talk to you. You've been listening to my conversation with pastor and author Dominic Doan, all about his beautiful new book, Your Longing Has a Name. Check out the show notes for links on how to connect with Dominic how to get his book, and of course, the uh, <clears throat> well-narrated audiobook, and how to connect with us as well. I would love to hear from you. You can call the podcast and leave a message sharing your thoughts, 612-446-0069. Let me know ways that you have found to save your faith, questions you might have, or topics you'd like to see explored. Thank you so much. Connect with us at savingmyfaith.com. And don't forget... We're in this together. You're not alone. And you are deeply loved.